Well, welcome to December. I know for me, that means I need to decide what am I going to stop doing? What am I going to quit? So what do you think? If you quit something, does that mean you failed or are you just opening the door for new growth? Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, our partner sponsor today is Harry's. Harry's.com, that's where I get my razors that I shave with. I hope you are as well. I'm going to give you some ideas for some really cool Christmas gifts here in a little bit. Well, here's some of the questions we're going to be dealing with today. I am beginning to question how beneficial setting goals really is. Geez, I love that question. We'll unpack that. Here's one. Somebody says, how can children in poverty start a business? We need to get some responses for that. And I know you as the listeners will help me out on that. We've got some great resources, but I want your help on that. Somebody says, could there be an opportunity servicing coffee machines? Somebody else wants to know, I need a raise, but the nonprofit I work for is facing budget cuts. How do you handle that? You need a raise, but the company you're working for, organization you're working for, is going through cuts, doesn't have the money to keep going itself. Well, tough issues, we'll address that. How can a guy sculpt and paint full-time and be able to quit his job working at a wastewater plant? Somebody says, Dan, should I volunteer to work for nothing to get in the door or would that appear needy? That's a great question. We'll discuss that. Here's our quotation for the today comes from Henry David Thoreau, who says, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. I know that's a familiar quotation to you, but I find myself going back to it again and again. As a matter of fact, I spent a lot of time in the last week, Joanna and I were actually out on a cruise, but I spent a lot of time, it seems almost uh, counterintuitive, I picked up out of the library in the cruise ship a copy of Walden, Henry David Thoreau's book, where he describes living simply. And I I think it is kind of ironic that um, certainly I was not in a simple situation seems like extravagance in many ways. And yet I was drawn to the book and certainly continue to be so. But here, here's one of the things I want us to look at today, because I think it's really an important point. I hear a lot of people talk about coming to kind of the end of a chapter, coming to the end of a season or they just lost a job, or their business is struggling and not doing well, or they set as a goal last year to lose 20 pounds and actually they gained 20 instead. You know, man, just failing. Well, Henry David Thoreau went to the woods. Now, that's where he wrote Walden. But he wasn't there for all of his life. He didn't live there forever. He went there for six months, wrote, thought, experienced a lot of new things, and then he left. Now, this comes from the conclusion. I want to read you just a short section from the conclusion of Walden. Thoreau says, I left the woods for as good a reason as I went there. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. 
It is remarkable how easily and insensibly we fall into a particular route and make a beaten track for ourselves. I had not lived there a week before my feet wore a path from my door to the pond side. And though it is five or six years since I trotted, it is still quite distinct. Now, here, here's the point. Okay, that's, I'm going to stop reading from Walden. I could go on forever. But he says, I left the woods for as good a reason as I went there. Now, he went there to experience something new, to view life from a different perspective. He built a little cabin, but he noticed the sunrise in ways that he'd never had before. The birds singing, the night sounds, the clarity, the water. And what it offered him. I mean, all those things, he experienced new ways because he was living so simply. But then he says, he left. Perhaps it seemed to me that I had several more lives to live and could not spare any more time for that one. Wow. I mean, that's what I want you to think about. If you're at the end of a season, if you're in a job that is just sucking the life out of you, quit, move on. It doesn't mean that you have failed. I mean, quitting does not mean you failed. It may just mean you're interested in growth and new opportunities. I heard Jeff Goins this morning on his podcast talking about you could quit your way to success. Sometimes quitting is really necessary as the next stepping stone toward your success. Well, just a little bit there about setting goals. This is a great time of year. Obviously, I'm a big believer in that. I get questioned on that frequently. I got this note from Steve who says, I've always been someone who wrote down goals for the upcoming year. I even went so far as to sign up for a program to help me with the process this last year. But after growing, going through this year and seeing so many unplanned opportunities come my way, I'm beginning to question how beneficial planning so far ahead really is. I recently wrote down a vision of what I wanted my life to be like in the future in first person. This provided me with a real emotional attachment to it. Since I have this clear vision in mind, I'm thinking it would be better to just write actions I need to take for the next three months instead of trying to come up with a year-long list of actions. I realize not having yearly goals is heresy to many and would have been to me in the past, but I'm going to give this new plan a try. Well, Steve, I love your questioning on this. Personally, I'm pretty clear on five-year goals as well as my one-year goals. Now, here's, here's why. And this is a conversation, golly, Dave Ramsey and I had years and years ago and have continued to touch bases on it over the years because it's such a predictable pattern. It's easy to track that more, the more financially successful people are, the longer time frame they have in their goals. Now, here's how this works. So if someone makes $8 an hour, they plan week to week. They get paid on Friday. By Monday, the money's gone. They start all over again. If you rent to someone like that, you better collect rent once a week because their timing frame is so short. Now, on the other hand, you talk to someone who makes $300,000 a year, you can be sure that they can describe to you their five and 10 year goals. The more money somebody makes, the longer their time frame. So then the question becomes, is it the chicken or the egg? You may think, well, if I made $300,000 a year, it'd be easy for me to talk about where I want to be five or 10 years out. Well, what if you did the reverse? What if you're making $8 an hour now, but you started planning what you want your life to look like five or 10 years from now? We see monumental increases 
in people who are able to do that and do that well. Now, to Steve's question here, though, I want to come back, Steve, to your question, because having goals defined does not remove the spontaneity spontaneity from life. And that's kind of what you're implying, that you would have missed new opportunities if you would have had your life so clearly structured out with goals, you wouldn't have had room for new opportunities. Wow, I don't do that. I mean, I allow 15% of my time to be open to unexpected interruptions or new opportunities, but I still want to have that big picture of what I want my future life to look like. And I agree that our goals should include our vision for the future and not be just a list of actions to take. With my goals, a lot of times I don't identify really as much on the actions as I do just the end result. But then I develop the actions along the way based on the emotional pull that the desired result creates. Golly, thanks for your thoughtful question. I, I love these that are framed around setting goals and, uh, accomplishing new things and what it is that we want to quit. But boy, be aware, be very, very aware. Quitting does not necessarily mean failing. It's a necessary part of getting to the success that we all want. Now, got to mention Harry's a little bit here. We know the holiday season is here, which means if you're like me, you're probably beginning to stress out about the guys in your family, you know, that are impossible to shop for. Uh, it could be your dad or your brother or just a friend, or you may need a gift for a coworker, you know, and certainly this is like, you wouldn't normally get somebody, you know, deodorant or something like that. It may seem like we're talking about that, but this is not true with Harry's. I mean, you got to check out these kits. They are stinking awesome. Now I'll have to admit Harry's treats me well. They just sent me a box of the brand new it's it's called the winter winston set if you go to harrys.com you can check this out it's a gold handle i mean this is really elegant and the whole kit includes you know the shaving gel and a little travel bag the whole deal now that's one of the fancier ones but i mean you don't have to spend a whole lot of money i mean they start at 15 dollars the kind that i use daily and carry with me in my travel bag it's a $15 set and you can use the 48 days code and get $5 off that on your first purchase. So go to harrys.com right now. Check it out as a special offer for 48 days fans. You know, Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with the code 48 days. Now, don't wait. Free shipping for the holidays ends on December 10th. So act now. I don't know when you're listening to this, but it ends on December 10th. So act now. Just go to H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter 48 days and you're going to be set for some really cool gifts that the guys in your life are going to thank you for. Trust me. Well, let me just include a couple of success stories here. A lot of things happening in the 48 days dot net community. If you aren't a member there, you ought to be. I mean, I don't care if you're an employee, if you're an employer. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're retired or a stay-at-home mom, it really doesn't matter. There's enough things happening there that are just worth your time, worth your while to be involved. Greg Davis started a discussion on productizing your passion. Now, that was in the group Coaching with Excellence, but he's, he's developed a new program to assist entrepreneurs and coaches with developing products and packages that are easier to sell. 
Now, one of the things you hear me talk about, me, Dan, that you hear me talk about a lot is if you're a coach, speaker, author, is you need to repurpose your content. You need to give people multiple ways to experience your core message. Greg has a service here that he's providing on how to turn your ideas into products. So if you go to passionproduct.com, you can download his initial free worksheet on how to productize your passion. So go to passionproduct.com. You got to slow down when I say that because it's kind of a tongue twister. Mark Cooney has an idea that I think is pretty cool. He says, I hope you're well looking forward to this holiday season. I'm excited to let you know about a new service website that I just have launched. Now check this out. It's called you have the mic. This is a service that allows people to call in and talk about anything and have someone listen intently. This idea has been in my head for many years. It goes back to the early 80s when I started following the annual surveys done by the Chicago sales and marketing executives. One of the questions they ask every year is, what do you want most? And the number one answer consistently year after year was to tell somebody about my day and have them really listen. Wow, that's that's pretty profound when you think about it. People are that desperate to have somebody just listen. So he has set up... You have the mic, M-I-C, you have the mic.com. When clients call, I will confidentially listen to anything appropriate they wish to talk about. Most people listen to respond, but I will be listening to understand. No advice or direct coaching will be giving. Now, so here's the deal. I mean, you go check it out. You can, you can select them there. And I did. I went and checked it out. So it's you have the mic.com. Mike has set this up one of our active members in 48days.net, you can choose a free 10-minute session where he'll listen, question, and encourage. Or for $49, you can set up a 30-minute call where he goes a little more in-depth. But 10 minutes free to have him just listen and affirm and just be a listening ear. I think that's a pretty cool idea. Now, I'm not sure you can leverage that enough to create significant income. That I'll be curious about. Because it's obviously time and labor intensive. It requires Mike's listening ear while he's listening to one person. It's not easy to scale a business like that. But perhaps he'll come up with ways to scale it when he hears some of the things that people want so desperately from that. Great idea. I love, I love the concept. I'll have to think about that a little bit. We got some pretty interesting blogs going on over there at... Um, 48days.net, Mickey Vandaloo has one on three ways to maximize your next professional conference experience. Marcy Travis has a really cool one, Seeking My Dream Job, where she goes through that. Matt Soderstrom has one on What Do I Want My Legacy to Be? That one really jumped out at me. He's got a really cool old car graphic on part of his blog there, but just talks about what are we doing to leave the legacy that we want. Well, not that and a whole lot more. Um, important to listen to out there who want your stories as well always love the success stories things that people are doing we got a whole bunch of people releasing books again yeah, i communicated with pat flynn this morning he's got a new book will it fly that i'm really eager to have come out joanne's my wife has her new book we should get copies today we're told creating a haven of peace i'll be sharing more about that in the next couple of weeks whole lot of authors releasing books, new products as we roll into the new year here. Congrats on doing that. If you got a story, just go to the 48days.com site. Click on Ask Dan. 
Leave your story there. Be happy to share that in an upcoming podcast. Well, Ben asked, I can't find the episode where you mentioned the book, Book Scavenger, who recycles and sells via Amazon. I'm trying to reach out to him about some of his operations. Thanks. Well, that guy, that book scavenger is my friend, Greg Murphy from up in Cincinnati. The easiest way to find him is to go to his site, sevenfigurebooksales.com. You can go there. You'll see some videos from him. Now I'm going to be doing some promo with Greg as we roll into the new year. We're going to do something in January where we really, I give him more of an opportunity to share his idea, what he's doing, and then how you can model what he's done with his business. So we're going to be pulling that to the forefront and really telling you how to do that, how he's been so successful. He'll sell over $3 million this year in, uh, in, in old books that other people threw out essentially. So I want to tell you how to do that. Got a cute note from David Powers, uh, again, active in 48days.net, but David sent a note about guy. I, I talk about Acres of Diamonds. I mean, Acres of Diamonds is a free book that we give out when people sign up for my newsletter, I think, and other ways. But it's about sometimes your best opportunity is right under your nose. You just don't realize it. Well, this is a literal Acres of Diamonds where just this last week, there's some guy in Switzerland who out digging around found 4,000 coins. These are Roman coins. A trove of more than 4,000 bronze and silver coins dating back to ancient Rome, uncovered in the orchard of a fruit and vegetable farmer, has been described as one of the biggest treasures of this kind found in Switzerland. The huge hoard of coins buried about 1,700 years ago and weighing 33 pounds was discovered in Yukon in Switzerland's northern part after the farmer spotted some shimmering green coins on a molehill in his cherry orchard. <laughs> anyway, they went and actually dug them up. There's 4,166 coins, most in excellent condition. The coins imprints remain legible. It says the coins were the, the orchard where the coins were found was never built on. It's land that's always been farmed. The coins excellent condition indicated that the owner systematically stashed them away shortly after were made. The archeologist said for some reason that person had buried them shortly after the year 294 and never retrieved them. Most of the coins made mainly, mainly bronze, but with silver content, 5% unusually high amount were buried in small leather pouches. Wow, the archaeologist said it was impossible to determine the original value of the money due to rampant inflation at the time, but said they would have been worth at least a year or two of wages. How much the coins were worth today was beside the point. He said the farmer would likely get a finder's fee, but the objects found belong to the public in accordance with Swiss law. Now, that's an interesting twist to that story, isn't it? I mean, even in the Bible, there's a story about a guy who spotted some treasure. So he covered it up real quickly. And then he went and bought the property knowing that then the treasure would be his. It seems like kind of a back-ended story actually in the Bible. I've never quite been able to get my head around that, how that's really fair that he knew the treasure was there and then bought the property. It's like me going to an auction or it's like me going out on a Saturday afternoon because on Craigslist, you know, I'm looking at some guy's Corvette. 
Well, in looking at it, I notice in the trunk that he's got a bank deposit bag there. And while out on a test drove drive, you know, I open it up and discover there's $10,000 cash in there. So I just kind of hide it back in the trunk again. And I come back and I buy the car from the guy knowing that there's $10,000 of his money in the trunk. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't do that. The money belongs to the dude. So, uh, but, but this is kind of a different story. I mean, if I've owned some property and I've lived here for 20 years and then I discover some shiny objects, I would expect that to be mine. I wouldn't expect that to be the government according to Swiss law. Well, I'm not sure how that works. Well, we're going to switch gears here a little bit. This is a, an audio clip. I, want, I wanted to play this because I want you to listen carefully. It, it's very poignant and listening allows you to hear more than just the lady's voice. And it kind of sets the stage for her question. Check this out. This is Renita Butler. My question is, how do you start a business for little children that are living in poverty? Thank you. Well, again, and just in listening to that, it breaks my heart. You know, there's sirens in the background. You just kind of get a mental image of what kind of situation um, Renita is in. And I've already reached out. We're going to send whatever resources we've got that might be helpful in this situation. But do I believe that children in poverty cannot be involved in a business and get started? Absolutely. Now, for one thing, you know, I want anybody struggling with this to go back just two episodes back, listen to the podcast, Raising Creative and Entrepreneurial Kids. Now on that, we had a whole lot of examples about kids who were doing creative things to start money-making businesses, and none of the ideas required a lot of money in advance. I mean, good ideas typically do not. And one of the resources, obviously, that we sent, Renita, was 48 lower no-cost business ideas because... I put that together very quickly just in response to people questioning the very same concept. Is it possible to start a business without having a lot of money? Well, yes, it is. Some of the ideas I've got in that book are like getting wood chips from the companies that are trimming trees in the neighborhood and then reselling that to neighbors who want it for playgrounds or nature trails or, or going to a local tire dealer and getting big old tractor tires that they're going to just haul to the recycling field that we can have absolutely free as well. But then instead of discarding those, setting those up as a playground area, now that involves a little work and maybe more work than a small child could do certainly, but it's an idea and there's more, there's many, many more in there in the 48 low no cost business ideas just to help people get started on ideas. But in the podcast that I did just two episodes back, and I talked about my own son, Jared, doing bicycle repair, very, very profitably so. Well, he went to the other houses in the neighborhood where we lived, but I mean, he he had simple tools, I mean, that you could get for $15 at Walmart, but certainly nothing beyond that was required other than just his ability to repair the bikes, to do good work, to bring them back up to speed for people. And Ashley, my daughter, made apple pies and got paid really what she was. I checked on it because I wanted to make sure I was accurate. And, of course, Ashley now is 
33 years old. So this is some time ago when she was in high school, but she was selling her pies for $20 a piece and usually had a waiting list. And often people would buy like 10 at a time if they were going to have an event and just wanted a stockpile. Now with that, she would have to have the money up front for the ingredients. Now I don't know how much that is, but I suppose it's a couple dollars a pie and certainly there would have to be that, but there are low cost business ideas in that podcast. One of the ladies talked about one summer, their neighbor hired a team of men to repair his farm fence that was adjacent to their backyard. And one of her sons who was in the fifth grade at the time set up a little food stand, started selling food. Now he was responsible to purchase the food and pay for it. But Certainly not a whole lot required in advance. Now there's somebody said, Dan, uh, my son Xander is following the Ramsey kid snack on our bar tradition with a box where I work. So a kid set up, and this is a, I think a, well, I'm not sure. I don't remember if it was, I think it was like a 10 or 12 year old kid who set up a snack box in the break room where his daddy worked. And he says he, he has, um, After restocking cost, he's making around $50 a week for about an hour's work. Austin Andrews, Andy Andrews' son, shared his story about Sporty Citrus, where he offered to take care of the citrus trees in the little town where they live. And with that, then produced the income to pay cash for his own 2013 GMC truck that cost a whole lot of money. But there, there's a whole lot of ideas in there. And certainly I want to encourage you on that. I'll let you know, yeah, there's a whole lot of things that uh, kids in poverty can just as easily. Uh, the things that make money are ideas. It's not money. It's having the idea and willingness to implement. So with that, there's a whole lot of things that children can do. And you don't have to come from a wealthy family to get a start. Thanks for your question, Renita. John says, my question is regarding maintenance of Keurig coffee machines. I visited some businesses that provide coffee using these machines. My observation is that many of these machines are not cleaned regularly or the filters changed. Yeah, they're low maintenance machines, but sometimes low maintenance can also mean no maintenance. My question is, could there be an opportunity, even a small one, in servicing these machines and charge a monthly fee? I would provide the cleaning, changing the filters when needed, also provide the coffee pods, as well as the cream and sugar. Also, what do you think about having the customer rent the machines from me and I still provide the monthly maintenance and supplies? Thanks, Dan, for all you do. You're a real blessing. John, I love your question and I love where you went with it in the second phase because the more you provide speed, efficiency, and convenience for people, the more you can profit financially. So is there an opportunity to maintain the Keurig machines? Yeah. Is there enough opportunity there? I'm not sure. I mean, I think it would have to be a pretty significant usage and a pretty significant number of machines to make that scale enough to really be profitable. But I love your next step. Now, this has been certainly been done. There are companies that do provide the coffee machines and all kinds of different forms, you know, vending machines. But it's certainly worth pursuing because the Keurig machines are are such a hot ticket right now. And for you to come in and say that you will provide those at no cost, and they're very inexpensive. I mean, we have a couple here at the sanctuary, and I know they aren't 
a whole lot or I wouldn't have approved it. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I said, okay, since it wasn't a whole lot of money just to satisfy coffee drinkers who do come through here. But I think that's your best idea is you provide the machines and everything. Then it's your responsibility to maintain them. And if something breaks, you just replace it. I think that's your best idea. Yeah, I think that's a real opportunity. I've mentioned at times the fact that we live in the country. We live outside Franklin, Tennessee, and our house is on a well. So we don't have city water. Well, we love the well water. It's very pure and clean and full of minerals. But because it is full of minerals, we run it through a filtering system and a water softening system. And you've probably heard me talk about the fact that, yeah, geez, like twice a month, I got to pop my head in the little building where we have our filter and water softener and check the level of the salt. And then, oh my, here it is low again. Well, gee, I got to run by Home Depot, pick up some bags of salt. And the car that I drive on a daily basis isn't even appropriate to pick up bags of salt. So I got to switch vehicles, drive my little Suzuki wagon or something else where I can go by Home Depot, get the salt, bring it out here, and then back up, unload the bags, open the bags of salt and put it in. Would I welcome a simple service to come by a couple times a month? Just check that, maintain it, keep the salt. Up? Yeah. And, and the fact, here's, here's the irony in this. I live in Williamson County, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. Williamson County, it's where there's a lot of country music stars. You know, Luke Bryan, golly, Vince Gill, Amy Grant, Alan Jackson, Nicole Kidman, Keith Urban, we go on and on. They live in, live in the county where I live. It's the highest income county per capita in the state of Tennessee, 11th in the nation. So that means that people, a lot of people aren't really pinching pennies. But a lot of people like I are on wells. They're not on city water. And they have the same setup that I just described. Water filter and water softening system. Is there an opportunity to put together a group of people where there's a hundred places that you're servicing like me, where you pop in, take care of that? I would have to believe that there is. But sometimes those are, those are the kind of things that you see as opportunities. Absolutely. Put together a plan and work on it. Make it a business. Great question, John. All right, Lou from Illinois says, I currently work for a nonprofit organization that serves low-income families. I've been working with the organization for a little over a year, recently had my annual review. I've genuinely looked for ways to serve, connect with staff, and bring value to our clients and organization. Volunteering to help with community events and lunch and learns, taking on a second role in the organization to help reach out to the community looking for ways to fill needs in the operations like creating a cheat sheet for our staff for more standardized practices aimed to provide the best customer service. My question is this year we've recently had budget cuts and I know that I've been underpaid in comparison to market value. I'd really like to ask for a raise. Is this appropriate right now? If so, what's the best way to ask? Well, Lou, it's a very fair question and a very fair approach. However, we have to identify what is it that you can control and what is it that you cannot control. You may very legitimately deserve a raise because of all the value that you described that you're adding and the fact that you've been there a significant amount of time. You're loyal, responsible, effective, productive employee. However, if the organization doesn't have money, they don't have money. They can't produce it. 
So what you're going to have to decide, I mean, you can ask, but it doesn't sound like your chances are very good that that's going to happen. Now, in a nonprofit, I have known people who have been told that they could have a job at a nonprofit as long as they raised enough money to cover their salary. Now, personally, I think that's a pretty weak business model for an organization to have, but it's certainly not uncommon for a nonprofit to say, you get out and raise enough money to cover your salary, you can keep your job. And if you raise more money, and I've known people, I actually knew a pastor one time, this is kind of a, I don't know, interesting story. I'm not sure if it's funny or sad, but it's an interesting story where he came in and said that he would simply pastor the church and simply take 10% of whatever income the church brought in. So in the early years, it was a very small amount. So you can imagine, you know, if a church brings in $50,000 and the pastor gets 10%, that's $5,000. But the last I heard, the church had a little over a $6 million budget, which means that the pastor was then getting $600,000. He probably earned it, you know, growing it as he did. That's a discussion for another day, perhaps. But if you want to take responsibility for generating your salary, I mean, that's one thing if you work in a nonprofit. But if you want to just do your work and have them be responsible for generating funds, which they're obviously having a hard time doing, eh, it's probably not going to happen. So the real question then becomes, do you need to continue staying there where you're underpaid for all the value you bring? Or is it time for you to look for a new opportunity? Now, remember our, remember our theme, quitting doesn't mean that you failed. It simply means that you're open to growth and a new opportunity. Well, that seems like a good opportunity right there to bring in just a little music. We'll switch, switch gears here a little bit. But to remind you that we are just going through questions, real-life questions from people just like you and me. So if you got a question, slip on over to 48days.com, the website. Click on Ask Dan, and you can submit your question there. Or you can simply shoot an email to me at askdan at 48days.com. Be delighted to hear from you. I love hearing these stories. And the interesting questions, as always. Here's a question from Joe. Now, Joe does Pod to Pod, the uh, service to podcasters, which I absolutely love. Joe, thanks for your question. He says, who's an ideal candidate for a mastermind? Who's an ideal candidate to join a seminar? I do understand that masterminds are more for accountability among peers. And seminars are to present people with information to enable themselves to apply the information. It's vital that I know when to recommend a mastermind, when to recommend a seminar. Is a seminar for educating oneself, albeit in an accountable group setting? Otherwise, they can learn from the book or podcast. And the mastermind, after they know the info and how to apply it to keep them accountable, is there an overlap? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Is somebody a candidate for a mastermind or should they just take a seminar? And frankly, there are a lot of masterminds that are being set up today that are called masterminds when they are not, in fact, what I would refer to as a mastermind. They are group coaching or group mentoring or group seminar where there's somebody who's obviously in charge, somebody who's kind of the leader of the pack and they're providing training, educating, mentoring, and so on. To me, that's not a mastermind. In a mastermind, I think there is more of an equal, on par, peer-to-peer sharing accountability, where everybody who comes in has as much ability to contribute as they do need to get. 
that's what how I would do. Now that's a real rough description, obviously, but I, it, it kind of distinguishes if somebody's a candidate for a seminar. I'm a candidate for seminars. I go to seminars and workshops all the time, but that's very different from what I expect to experience in my mastermind. So yeah, I think you've framed it well. I think you've made a good distinction in how you've framed it. That if somebody needs to learn and really needs to be taught on a particular topic, they're a candidate for a seminar. If they are an expert in a particular area, now it doesn't mean you need, you need to be an expert in everything. Certainly nobody, nobody is. I certainly am not. But uh, if you have some areas of success, then you may be a candidate for a mastermind where you can share those levels of success as you continue to learn in other areas from people whose success in those other areas supersede your own. So it's still a sliding kind of scale, not a hard and fine, hard and fast line by any means. But I would encourage people to be doing both. And Joe, in your position, you can certainly be referring people to both. Brent says, Dan, I got a great success story in my history. After several years in consulting, I moved overseas to run a business in the developing world. It's been a great adventure. After several years there, I've transitioned back to the U.S. within the company, but I'm ready to make another change. I'm interested in personal finance and position well for the space with a CPA, but haven't identified an interesting business model. Most people struggle as a fee-for-service advisor or become an investment salesperson. Have you seen innovative models in the space? Well, Brent, you're exactly right. That's exactly the two models that I see. People who call themselves financial consultants, financial planners. Now, I need to be careful with the terms here because if you call yourself a financial planner, that is a designated title that implies certification and certain, you know, you know, courses, credentials that you have to have to call yourself that. But certainly there are financial advisors everywhere. You can be one tomorrow. And people who are have two different models of creating income, just as you described. So they're charging a fee for service or they become a salesperson for products. It's very difficult to make the fee for service advisor work in the financial area. People are used to getting that advice for free. You can talk to your insurance agent, your CPA, your bookkeeper, your accountant, your banker, you know, all those people are going to give you information for free and people expect tons of financial information to be free. So the people who are paid usually pack it on the back end by recommending investment products or insurance products. And then they're getting paid by the companies whose products they're promoting. There's nothing deceptive about that, but that's just the way that it is. So you have to decide, is there one side of the scale? Frankly, I don't know many people in the paid for paid for services side of financial planning who really create a significant income. Most who uh, are in the financial planning arena are in fact selling stocks, mutual funds, you know, insurance, something like that. And I don't really know of, of many creative ways beyond those two. I mean, there's certainly opportunities in both that. I don't know many creative ways that I can think of right off the top of my head for doing it differently. Here's somebody said, Michael says, if you like Scott Stearman, now Scott is the sculptor who did our most recent edition, the bronze Eagle that's, stands in front of the sanctuary here at my office. He says, if you like Scott Stearman, I think you'll like my friend Cody's work. Cody's sculpture Facebook page uh, is one of the ways I hope some use some of his knowledge to help him figure out how to sculpt and paint full time and be able to quit his job working at a wastewater plant. 
Any words of wisdom or advice you have on that would be very appreciated. Well, this is a really interesting kind of question, and I, and I love the question because it has to do with even if somebody is extremely talented as an artist, is that going to guarantee that they can make a living? Well, no, it's not. Because having the talent is a very small part of how you turn that into a viable business. Marketing is what's going to make that a business. Getting out and selling that. Now, Scott Stearman has done a remarkable job of that. I mean, he has universities and organizations that come back to him repeatedly to commission major works. He does the World Changers, which is an annual series. He just did a bust of John Maxwell, but he's done in that Tony Dungy, Truett Cathy, uh, Condoleezza Rice, a lot of people like that that he's done where he gets paid a lot of money to do a bust of somebody they consider a world changer. So he has a lot of very established clients and has a lot of visibility because he's been doing this for so long. But his money, uh, I mean, his, his yeah, I want to be careful on how I frame this. I mean, his, his sculpting is amazing. Is he the very best in the world? I really don't know. I'm not a good judge of that. I'm not a good judge of art, period. But I would suspect that there are other sculptors who are on an equal par with Scott in terms of talent. And maybe your friend Cody is. But the distinguishing factor in terms of making money or not is in marketing. It's not in having more talent. I mean, if you look at, again, I live in a musical community, obviously here just south of Nashville, Tennessee. But if you look at the musical talent, I mean, Taylor Swift is probably on her way to being a billionaire. Well, Adele is. Adele, more specifically, is because of what just happened this last week. I mean, 3.8 million sales of her new album in the very first week. I mean, it broke all records. I mean, she is well on her way and very publicly so to being a billionaire. Is she 10 times better than somebody who is here in Nashville who has maybe made $10,000 last year? Probably not. You know, is she twice as good? I don't really know. But there's something about the magical quality of Adele's voice and how she was positioned and how people around her have helped her market that, that exploded her success to the top. And I think it's remarkable. I mean, I think it's wonderful um, what, what's happened there, but it's not a matter of her being so much more talented. It's a matter of there's some other things that have come into play. And when we talk about that convergence, that sweet spot where you combine passion, talent, and money, and that money part means how are you marketing your talent? How are you getting the word out there, sharing the word about what it is that you're doing? Well, let me grab another question here. John says, thanks so much for your podcast, your work. They've been very encouraging to me as I begin the job hunt process. Again, I've been on a self-given sabbatical for about six months, and it's been incredibly refreshing and beneficial. That, that's a great line. Instead of, gee, I lost my job and I'm miserable. I've been on a self-given sabbatical for six months. It's been incredibly refreshing and beneficial. Lots of time to enjoy my family, including lots of books reading and wrestling with my small kids, many dates with my wife. Well, doesn't that sound like a, that is a sabbatical. That's a real refreshing look at 
being in between opportunities, as we call it around here. Well, John says currently time is to my benefit as I don't have a job to report to every day. Do you think I could use this to my advantage to offer to intern or volunteer at places for a week or two in order to get my foot in the door? I think this would be a great, great to learn a few new businesses and show my skills, but I don't want to come off as needy. Your thoughts. We could go. Personally, I really do like the idea. I like the idea because it so counters the approach that most people take. Now think about, you know, here we've got a 22 year old graduate who just got his degree in English literature and he goes out here with that diploma stapled to his forehead and says, you pay me $80,000 a year and I may show up on Monday morning and do something for you. I mean, that's almost the extreme that it's taken to where they want, they want a guarantee with full benefits and retirement package before they ever show up for work the first day. Well, the antithesis to that would be to say, you know what, let me come work for you for a month. Then you determine if I have any real value. Now that's a model that was talked about way back in think and grow rich. Napoleon Hill talked about that. And he said, most of these young kids approach the wood stove of life and they say, give me heat and then I'll put some wood in. Or a farmer who says, Lord, just give me a great crop of corn this year. And then next year I'll actually plant some seeds and fertilize it and water it. You know, in many ways, it's very realistic to say, I'll work for you for free. Then you determine if I have any value. Now I have several people on my team who essentially have done that. They started with no guarantee, but we very, we right from the start established a method of compensation where based on revenues presented, produced, they did make money from day one, but it was totally based on them actually delivering what they said they could deliver. So I think it's a reasonable plan to do that. You can present that in a couple different ways. You, you could say that you're just exploring. So you want to shadow somebody for a week. But in the meantime, you'll actually contribute work as well. Or you could say that I'll work for a month and then we'll discuss whether my time and effort even have any value for you. Or you'll say that I'll work for a minimum wage. I'll work for $10 an hour for you. And I'll do that for 90 days. And then we'll discuss what the increase, if any, should be based on that. I love those kind of approaches. I love when people contact me about those kind of ideas. So I don't think it's unreasonable at all. I don't think you'll back yourself into a corner. I don't think it makes you seem needy or weak. Just as a result of doing that. Nope. I think you're on the right path. I think it, to me, sounds good. I like what you're doing. Well, hey, we're out of time. Got to round up things here. Remember, quitting doesn't mean you've failed. It may just mean you're interested in new growth and opportunities. This may be the time to pull the plug on something you're doing. This may be the time to stop something this year. Don't keep doing something that's self-defeating. Don't keep going to a job that's self-defeating. Don't keep running a business that's self-defeating. Don't keep working for a nonprofit organization when you're being undercompensated, not rewarded for the value that you bring to the table. Quitting in any of those situations doesn't mean you fail. It means you're interested in growth. You're a good candidate for growth. Well, hey, I'll just remind you again of our quotation for the day coming from my friend Henry David Thoreau. I've spent a lot of time in his books. I just went through his 
document. I just ordered copies of his document, Civil Disobedience, incidentally, which is a topic for a discussion as well. The primary document used by Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King in forming their ideas around civil disobedience came from Thoreau years and years ago. Anyway, he says, and we like to be reminded, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. Keep that in mind this week. Keep advancing in the direction of your dreams. And hey, keep being part of this amazing community of people who are, in fact, finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.